0: Welcome to Code presented by Underdog Fantasy. Before diving into some injury talk and best ball rankings, I have to give you a sneak peek of my guest for today's show. I don't fanboy too often, but when I first connected with today's guest, I had a few butterflies. Crazy, right? The hardened, cold-hearted, argumentative, and always rational Focused on the actual, the numbers, never fumbling, composed, emotionless, masquerading data scientist, the analytics guy. Apparently, there's no analytics handbook for handling nervous energy and excitement. I tried hiking. I tried yelling linear regression at the top of my lungs. I did a few live best ball drafts on underdog. I robbed a bank, resequenced the human genome and got in some heated Twitter debates, and let me tell you, nothing could calm me down. I know this is a fantasy football podcast, but for those who don't know, before joining Player Profiler full-time, I worked for two MLB teams, and during that time, I was a weekend warrior for Roto Underworld, banging out coding scripts on Saturdays and Sundays for the site. And I believe that my knowledge of baseball analytics has helped differentiate me in the fantasy football industry as I have a different career path than most other analysts and a different way of evaluating players and quantifying upside than Joe Fantasy at that other fantasy site overcharging you for their advice. With that being said, I guarantee you today's guest is not one that you have heard before on other fantasy football podcasts. Today's guest will not be high-fiving me about my rankings while I high-five him back. We will not rank our top 50 running backs in Dynasty like some other shows do, but I promise you'll learn something new today and be entertained in the process. Before we get into the interview, let's talk about some revisions to the injury modeling process for this upcoming season. The past two years that I did this, I couldn't dedicate 100% of my energy and brain power to it, because i had the analytics day job on top of my fantasy football research now that my day job is fantasy football there's a few changes i'm working on to further improve and iterate on this process the past two years i'd been looking primarily at the amount of touches that players accumulated in games as a factor to account for in their injury profile this year I'm switching to the actual amount of times a player is tackled. I realize that non-contact injuries happen, and are, obviously, an injury that occurs without any contact and without a player being tackled. But, the early returns of making this switch are positive and can help identify playing style differences between running backs. For example, in the regular season and playoffs in 2020, Gus Edwards had 171 Total carries and receptions, and J.K. Dobbins had 175 total touches, four more than Gus Edwards. Yet, Edwards was tackled by more players in 2020 than Dobbins, even though he had fewer overall touches. Making a switch like this, in the way I fundamentally build my predictive modeling dataset, gives the 2021 injury predictions a slight edge over the 2020 version. It's all about minor tweaks in the process that can lead to better results and higher accuracy in the future. Now, I can accurately capture that although Dobbins may handle more overall volume in the Baltimore offense, he's taking fewer hits to his body than his backfield counterpart, the 235-pound battering ram that is Gus Edwards. And that matters. I think this is a fun and logical way to trick the model into understanding running back play styles and their effect on injuries. Another aspect of the injury model I'm working to improve is how it handles older players. With older players, we have a survivor bias problem, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I think we can all agree that older players generally can't handle the rigors of an NFL season as well as younger players. At the extreme, it's why we don't have any 50- or 60-year-olds in the NFL. There's no 46-year-old running backs taking carries. As your body ages, it becomes more susceptible to injuries, and it's more difficult to maintain muscle mass and flexibility. And so, there are fewer old players in the NFL. If we look at running backs or wide receivers, you'll notice there's far more 23- and 24-year-olds than 33- and 34-year-olds. However, if you just took players 25 and under and see what percent get injured each season, it's not all that different from taking the players 30 and older and seeing what percent get injured each season. Looking back the past half decade at all players that do anything during the season, around 15% of guys 25 and under get injured, yet only 12% of guys 30 and older get injured. Even if we control for position and workload, we still find that younger players... Are getting injured more often than older players so what gives this is where we can revisit survivor bias here's the competing phenomenon at play and why it would be foolish to say that as players get older their bodies are less likely to get injured before continuing all else equal i would rather entrust a 24 year old running back to survive a full nfl season than i would a 29 year old running back but Think about the guys that play in the NFL for a decade, and usually, you're looking at a pre-selected group of elite talents. If we look at all 24-year-old NFL players, we have the full mix of good players, bad players, average players, etc. But if we look at guys playing in their 30s, it's an elite group, and practically all of them were pro-bowl caliber talents earlier in their career. Think Adrian Peterson. Emmanuel Sanders, Travis Kelsey. These guys are bona fide studs. We don't have a lot of mid-30s scrubs in the NFL who were career backups. The guys that, quote, survive to a later age in the NFL are a special, pre-selected group. This is the survivor bias. That's why, all else being equal, we should expect a younger player to be less likely to get injured than an older player. They have less wear and tear on their bodies overall, and their muscles and joints can recover more quickly between games during the season. Guys like Adrian Peterson and Travis Kelsey are athletic freaks, and I would bet big money that their bodies naturally take longer to heal between games now than they did six or seven years ago. Travis Kelsey tore his ACL in the preseason of his rookie year. He was in his early 20s and his body healed quickly and he played a full season in 2014 and hasn't missed a game due to injury since then. If he tore his ACL today at age 31, I guarantee his body would not recover as easily from this injury. Another angle of this injury debate with younger versus older players is a little more speculative, but I'm confident enough in the logic here that I'll share it with you. Older players have made more money in their careers, and it's easier for them to call it quits if they have nagging injuries or their body just isn't recovering the way they hope it would after each game. Think Kerryon Johnson, playing a full season with a knee brace last year. You think he's going to be doing that if he's 30 years old with $25 in career earnings? I certainly don't think so. To better capture individual players becoming more likely to get injured in each subsequent season. I've changed how I look at their career workload to focus a little less on the past few years and to look a little more heavily at their entire body of work. This way, the model more intuitively understands that for each individual player, their injury probability is likely to rise in each subsequent NFL season. Mid-30s Adrian Peterson is more likely to get injured on a per-touch basis than mid-20s Adrian Peterson. That's looking at players individually compared to saying that 30-year-old NFL players get injured less frequently than younger players, where you're not really capturing that older players are more injury-resistant. Rather, players that survive in the NFL until age 30 are the preselected group of elite athletes, but for each individual player, think Adrian Peterson in his 20s versus Adrian Peterson in his 30s. For each individual player, their injury probability is generally increasing year after year. Best Ball Rankings for Underdog, as well as an article on Best Ball Strategy, may be live on the site by the time you hear this podcast. I'm really not sure. Just going to leave that there for my producer to edit out. Just kidding. I am my own editor and producer. We're keeping that in the show. Anyway, I've actually been posting a lot, a lot of Best Ball content on Twitter and giving my followers there a lot to look at, posting many of my finished rosters, so you can see which players I'm already targeting in drafts. If you've been missing out on the action there, you can follow me on twitter at jlarkytweets. J-L-A-R-K-Y, I like a good burger, as most people do. I wouldn't say 5 guys is my favorite, but we're going to talk rapid fire about 5 guys. In best ball. And I'll openly admit that's a fifth percentile segue, going from five guys' burgers to five guys in best ball. Hey, the caffeine doesn't hit the same every day. Am I not allowed to be below average? For just once in my life, coach, let me be below average. Well, on that concerning and angry note, let's dive in. Guy number one, AJ Brown. I have him well above consensus. And he's the rare wide receiver I'm targeting in round two of my best ball drafts on underdog. I could talk at length about AJ Brown, and he could be a fun player to dedicate a full, in depth episode to at a later date. Wink, wink. I'm no vacated targets expert or stats guy, but I know AJ Brown is talented. And the current receiving core in Tennessee is AJ Brown, Josh Reynolds, Anthony Ferkser, and a bunch of guys you've either Never heard of, or guys I can assure you've never started in fantasy football before, even in a mid season bye week pinch. In summary, AJ Brown has a path to massive target volume on a team with no other quality receiving options as it stands right now. He's tied to an efficient quarterback in Ryan Tannehill. The starting running back is Derrick Henry, no threat to catch any passes. If AJ Brown can be a high-end wide receiver one on only seven and a half targets per game, then yes, you get the picture. Tremendous upside if that guy's getting 130 or more targets a year. In all of 2020, he played on two knees that required surgery after the season. Healthy A.J. Brown with no target competition? Draft that man. Moving on. Guy number two and guy number three in tandem. Ronald Jones and A.J. Dillon. As I'm recording this podcast, news is breaking that the Buccaneers have signed Giovanni Bernard. Even if they never signed Gio, Ronald Jones' ADP and getting drafted ahead of A.J. Dillon made no sense. Ronald Jones is competing with Leonard Fournette, who proved to be the better overall running back down the stretch last year. Jones is also competing with Keyshawn Vaughn, who flashed every chance he had to touch the ball in 2020. Already... It was unclear how much work Ronald Jones would be getting. We had Bruce Arians' coach speak about getting Vaughn more involved. We had the re signing of Leonard Fournette. So the Ronald Jones battle was already fighting against two talented and competent running backs. Now, of course, we add Giovanni Bernard to the mix, though the dead horse had already been beaten. Why are you on Ronald Jones, dude? A.J. Dillon is getting taken after ronald jones in the green bay packers depth chart is aaron jones and aj Dillon. there is nobody else reasonably competing for touches there we've seen jamal williams be semi-fantasy relevant playing alongside aaron jones and in games that jones misses we've seen jamal immediately skyrocket to a mid-range rb1 now aj Dillon is taking over as the rb2 in green bay and the guy is an absolute monster And someone I expect to be in the mix for double digit touchdowns in 2021. Just to repeat, Ronald Jones was competing with Leonard Fournette and Keyshawn Vaughn for touches, while A.J. Dillon is on a great offense and at 250 pounds looks the part of an elite goal line back. He's only behind Aaron Jones on the depth chart, so if Aaron Jones goes down, wheels up for Dillon. Yet, if Fournette goes down, Ronald Jones would still be competing with Keyshawn Vaughn for touches. Oh, and now they bring in Giovanni Bernard too, which validates my suspicion that the Buccaneers are trying to find every excuse not to get the ball in fumble-prone Rojo's arms. Take A.J. Dillon later than Ronald Jones in best ball and thank me later. Guy number four, Noah Fant has an ADP of 92 on underdog, and he is the tight end seven there currently. I don't quite understand it. Here's the situation there. We have Cortland Sutton coming back, Jerry Judy. At best, Noah Fant is the third receiving option in that offense, but I'd say he's the fourth overall option behind Melvin Gordon as well. There's also KJ Hamler, who showed some life late last season and was their 2020 second round pick at wide receiver. There's also Albert Boonham coming back from injury, and he was commanding a lot of targets at tight end before going down last year. Add to it, That Denver has no competent quarterback on their roster and I don't even know what we're doing taking Noah Fant ahead of a guy like Robert Tunyon who is on both a better offense with a better quarterback and is higher on the pecking order for team targets. Truly, Noah Fant's ADP makes zero sense and I currently have no exposure to him on underdog best ball drafts because of this. Guy number 5, Will Fuller. I don't quite understand why he's going off the board after guys like Jamar Chase and Odell Beckham. The success of the 2020 wide receiver class is inflating Chase's ADP, I think. I really don't understand it. Odell Beckham is coming off an ACL tear and hasn't put up a season like Will Fuller's 2020 since 2018, three years ago. Will Fuller is being penalized for missing Game 1 of the 2021 season, as well as the Tuga Tagovailoa discount. I agree, Tua didn't look very good as a rookie, but he also had nobody to throw to. When your receiving depth chart is Devontae Parker, Mike Gesicki, and Jakeem Grant, you're probably going to struggle no matter how talented you are. Now, Tua gets Will Fuller, an elite deep threat, and overall incredible wide receiver. Just look at the Deshaun Watson splits circulating the internet in games he has played with and without Will Fuller. I usually think of small sample splits as primarily noise, but if you haven't already, just check them out. They're truly nutty. Anyway, Fuller should elevate the play of Tua and the surrounding Miami receiving options. And I don't like the narrative that Fuller is a bad fit in Miami for fantasy. Fuller has minimal target competition there, and Tua threw the ball deep on 15.3% of his throws last season. Fitzmagic, on the other hand, threw it deep 15.6% of the time last year. 153 compared to 15.6%. If you think Ryan Fitzpatrick is aggressive, then you're obligated to think the same for Tua Tagovailoa. Push the button on Will Fuller in underdog best ball drafts. And now it's time to talk to Cole Uvula. At C O L E. U-V-I-L-A on Twitter, the first professional athlete to make an appearance on Codebreaker. I'll get him on the line, and we'll break down his background and envelop you in a podcast experience unlike any you've heard before. And just a heads up, this interview is a tale of two mics. Cole's on the road for baseball right now, posted up in an undisclosed hotel location. So the quality of his mic will definitely sound different than mine. I know you'll all be big Cole Uvula fans after listening to this episode, and then we can crowdsource a new mic for him since I definitely want a second round of our discussion next offseason. I guarantee you'll have never heard someone with such a unique career path and views on how to use data as a professional athlete. With that being said, you know the drill. Give me 10 seconds to grab Cole and get those heads bouncing in anticipation. My guest today is Cole Yuvala. He's a professional baseball player in the Texas Rangers organization, armed with one of the nastiest curveballs out there, and a real student of the game with how he's used analytics throughout his pitching career. He's also a professional poker player, but most importantly, Cole is a patron of Matt Kelly, patreon.com slash podfather, and an owner of a couple dozen dynasty fantasy football rosters. I cannot wait to get started, and I know the listeners are going to love this episode and learn a few things along the way. Welcome to Codebreaker. Give the audience a little cliff notes version on who you are and your background. We'll cover it all today. More in-depth, folks. Don't worry. But first, tell us who Cole uvula is.
1: What's up, guys? Yeah, I'm a uh, right-handed pitcher in the Texas Rangers organization, an avid uh, fantasy football player. I try my hardest. I not really uh, reached my ceiling, I don't think quite yet, but we're on our way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I uh, train at drive-on baseball, have since 2013, which is a you know, training facility out in Seattle that focuses on data and analytics and among a lot of other things to develop baseball players. And in the off season, I spend my time, um, playing poker professionally. So that is, that is me. You
0: know, I think if, if we got, uh, Forgot got 10,000 guys in a room together, I don't think any single one of them would have anywhere near the unique, like triumvirate of skills and hobbies and passions that you do. So I'm looking forward to this and I know everyone's going to enjoy this because it's not every day that you get to talk to someone who I feel like in your case, like you've really followed your passions and just kind of seen where they take you and it's diverse, it's interesting and it's who you are. So I'm, I'm excited.
1: Yeah, no, it, it is. It is very unique. Um. But it, it, it's important for me, you know, it gives me a lot of balance and it gives me a lot of other things. Keep, you know, sometimes poker doesn't go well and, you know, I just focus on baseball for a month. And then, you know, when baseball is kind of getting me down, you know, I can just go play some cards and kind of let go. So it is, a, it is an interesting uh, background, but I wouldn't, really, wouldn't want it any other way.
0: Cole, before we go too much further in this interview, what do you want to plug? Tell us your Twitter and anyone that you want to shout out now that you've made it big time on the The sixth episode of Codebreaker.
1: Yeah. So, um, my Twitter is at ColeUV, and so is my Instagram. Same, same thing. Got the blue check rolling recently. Where? There we go. Verified. Yeah, we, we're we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and uh, gotta give a shout out to my main girl Kayla Andress, uh soon to be my wife. I know she'll listen to this, and you know, you're the best.
0: All right. So. Before we get into the, the meat and potatoes, how did you find out about Matt Kelly originally?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit of a story. I it was week 16 of a redraft uh, league that I was in. And this is before I found Dynasty. <laughs> I got, went down that rabbit hole, but uh, it's the league I've been in the longest. It was my first fantasy football league I joined in 2013 with my Jusco buddies, and at the time, I had yet to win the league. I ended up winning this year. Not, not when I started. There we go. Yeah, so I, I, I finally got the trophy. It took me, eight, I think, eight years. Yeah, so 2019, or it was 2020, um, anyway, week 16 of two years ago, Kyler Murray was a rookie, and Ryan Tannehill had just kind of started lighting the NFL on fire. And I had rode Tannehill to, to the playoffs and through the playoffs, but Kyler was playing playing Seattle. And my projections that I used at the time had panning slightly ahead. And then Ian uh, Harditz tweets out that he his helicopter was Tyler that week, which he kind of...
0: Oh, no, the helicopter.
1: So I saw the <laughs> helicopter, and I'm like, wait, you know, I mean, I, I really wanted to win the league, you know. So I started overthinking it, and I so... That week, actually, you know, Ian went on the Roto Underworld show. I think um, Mina Mansion, or, or one, one of them, they talked about Kyler, and I he had, like, linked the, to the helicopter, I think was linked, uh, you know, in the thread, So I clicked on it, started listening to Matt kind of BS and, and talk, and I really liked, you know, the way he went about it, and his kind of character he's developed, and. You know, obviously, with my background, you know, anything analytics is kind of what I'm drawn towards. And I never really knew at the time like fantasy football could be as complex and as detailed. And I just started listening to the podcast every day. Within a few weeks, I was scouring Reddit for, uh, you know, uh, Dynasty Orphans. And I, I joined one, it was a $10 league. Uh, my first player I acquired was actually Kyler Murray. But the, but the worst part of this story is I listened to these guys. I started Kyler over Tanny, and then Kyler, it was the right call because Kyler was lighting the Seahawks on fire, but he ended up uh, pulling his handy and getting yanked out of the game. And if, if I started Tanny, I would be back-to-back champion in that league, and I ended up losing by a couple points because Kyler uh, got hurt at halftime. But I couldn't, can't blame you know an injury on those guys. The process was right. Yeah, so ever since then, playerprofiler.com has been my most visited site. I'm on the site every day. I'm um, looking at the movement in the rankings, you know, looking at profiles, looking at, you know, all the analytics each player page has. So it's been uh, I haven't had like a ton of success in Dynasty yet because I, I've kind of started with a lot of those twenty twenty backs and young and but we're we are looking good in twenty twenty one, that is for sure.
0: I mean that's that's the name of the game, Dynasty. We gotta we gotta build that super team, build that dynasty. Yep. So let's actually talk about your favorite dynasty team right now. Give us the format just spend some time gushing over that projected starting lineup for 2021. Let us know your first round picks for for the next year too. Let's hear it.
1: All right. So it is actually the uh, Rangers Dynasty League. It is a league of 12 of us that all are in the Rangers' board. Some staff, uh, mostly players. It's a Superflex tight and Premium League, and it was my second ever startup, and everybody else's first. So it was a wonky one, and that is. <laughs> Part of the reason why I have the roster I have, but it's a it's it's easily my favorite league too because I'm in a lot of leagues with like people I've met from other leagues or like you know orphan teams you know like people I don't know personally like all these guys I know really well, so it's it's a lot of fun you know a lot of trash talk. I'll I'll give you the roster. So in the QB room we got Russ and Baker. That's it. So that you know we got some picks coming. We got some players coming in the draft.
0: Okay. All right, we'll, we'll get a pick in there in a little bit.
1: And then we got the running back room. I i don't think you can find me a better one. We got Jonathan Taylor, Cam Akers, DeAndre Swift, J.K. Dobbins, Antonio Gibson. So basically everybody but Clyde from 2020. And then so you we have five got,
0: of those top six. Yeah. Like and, yeah. Five of the top six from one of the most elite classes of all time. All right, keep going.
1: Really excited about this group. And then we got C.D. Lamb, DJ Moore, AJ Brown. Darren Waller <laughs> who I just acquired today. I gave up the one oh nine and Hunter Henry for Darren Waller because I, I think this team's ready to make a push. And then we have the one oh two, the one oh five, and the one oh seven. And this year's <laughs> So we're gonna get some we're gonna get some QBs, we're gonna get fields for sure at two, and then we'll figure out the rest. But I am awfully excited.
0: I mean that is just that's that's pretty filthy. I hope all of them are listening to this <laughs> podcast when it's released. No, I, just so they can
1: I don't want them to find the show man <laughs> this, is my, this is the
0: answer to the test you're gonna if they ever find this show one one day you're you're just gonna show up to the bullpen and they're they're all just just gonna give you the silent treatment for a full <laughs> session and that's when you're gonna know that they're aware that you're just gloating about how yeah. absolutely nasty
1: this team is <laughs> Yeah, they they think they probably all think because they know I'm in other leagues. They probably think I'm like super good at dynasty fantasy football because they look at my roster out here. But dude, we're not even sniffing this anywhere else. This is our, this is my baby for sure. I wish it was more than a hundred dollars a year. <laughs>
0: so, uh, sticking with baseball, you were taken round forty, which is the final round of the Major League Baseball draft. What was the day that you were drafted like? Was it anxiety followed by relief? Do you remember that initial phone call with Texas? Or was that whole day ultimately just one kind of nervous, uh, fast-paced blur?
1: No, I actually, I, I remember it really well. It was, um, I'll tell it in kind of like a two-day story. So on the second day of the draft, which is rounds three through ten, the area scout for Texas wanted me to go golfing with him because he wanted to be be there with me when I got drafted. If he submitted me as a sixth through tenth round pick and so he expected me to go on the second day. So that day was gloomy enough because I didn't get picked and we'd golf and it was like we were listening to the, the draft and nothing happened. Uh-huh. But it's like, you know, I mean, shoot, we got thirty more rounds left. And in my head, I'm like, hey, if I if I was in the mix round six through ten, I'm gonna go early day three. And I literally woke up that morning. I looked at my then girlfriend, now fiance, and I said, I'm gonna get drafted today with like a big smile on my face. And I was just, I was just, it was my life, you know, dream come true. And man, that day drug on. It's like round 20 was probably when I started to be like, geez, you know, maybe, I don't know, what did I miss? You know, Tucker, uh, Derek Tucker was the area scout that submitted me and drafted me. And he was texting me, hang in there, hang in there. I don't know what they're doing because an area scout, Unfortunately, they can only do so much. I mean, he wasn't even in the draft room when they were making these picks. He he does his report, it goes up the chain, and then they decide, really. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, him and I had actually developed a relationship, obviously enough to go golfing together. And he was hang in there, hang in there. And uh, yeah, it was long day. And I actually, you know, the 39th round hit, and this is when it really sunk in that I thought I wasn't going to get drafted because the Rangers, oddly enough, selected. Shay Patterson, who you uh, fantasy football guys might recognize. Definitely the Debbie uh, crowd will recognize. He was the quarterback for Michigan not too long ago. And I thought it was just a throwaway pick because, you know, that does actually happen, you know, that teams don't have enough roster spots to fill all 40 rounds. So that, you know, like Johnny Menzel got drafted one year, you know, and never was going to come play baseball. And I just thought it was a pick like that. And I said, well, if they're throwing away their picks, I got no shot. I ended up coming to to learn that uh, Patterson wants to have a baseball career when his NFL career winds down. So it wasn't a throwaway pick. And then, you know, 40th round hit. We were driving through to Kentucky. My buddy just texted me, uh, who was kind of in the mix with the Rangers at the time, Kyle Bodie, who we'll get into. He kind of knew. um, He had actually known for a while I was going to get picked in the 40th round. He didn't tell me. He said, hey, go check Twitter. I refreshed Twitter. There's my name. And then it was obviously very emotional, um, very happy, but man, it was, it was stressful that I, I hope nobody every year guys have to go through it. I mean, there's 30, well, I guess not anymore with the draft being shortened, but for, for many years, people all had to go through what I went through, but yeah, it would have been way cooler if I just went in the eighth round and could have partied or something that day.
0: Yeah. Take, take the next 36 hours, just relax.
1: Yeah, but it, it made the car the rest of the car ride home to Seattle from Georgia much easier. How
0: did the how were the Rangers so confident that you would be there in the 40th? Was it a case of uh they they happened to find out that other teams weren't necessarily on you or was it that you were a little bit older as a prospect at the time or just that
1: Yeah, I mean, the the end of the day and it, I didn't realize this at the time because when you're a draft prospect you see all the positives you block out tonight if you don't really you know I thought oh my hit.
0: well yeah you have to keep your confidence up as a pitcher
1: yeah you know I had had been up to 98 in front of the Rangers which I thought you know oh that means you're automatically drafted but the reality is I was 24 years old which is super old like probably I'm on a short list of one of the oldest players ever drafted I was coming off Tommy John surgery and I had a 4.7 ERA in the NAI so like I was it was one of my worst years actually in college of my, of the five years I played. I, it, I can only speculate, but I'd imagine they're just like, if we don't get this guy, we don't get this guy. Like he's a long shot. So they just slotted me to the last round and I was there and they said, sure. we'll, we'll, we'll honestly probably what it was, was they were doing my area scout a favor. You know, he really liked me. He thought I had, there was something to be done. And as you know, Tucker's guys there in the 40th round, we'll take them. And I think that's what happened. And I'm very, very lucky it did. That's,
0: yeah, you, I feel like you have an incredible story. Just for everyone out there, if some of that went over your head and you're like, "All right, what does that mean?" I'll give you the football parallel. Cole is kind of like think about a wide receiver where uh, late breakout, struggle as a senior, they're entering the draft a little bit older than you'd like, but they also ran a four two eight at the combine. <laughs> so it, there's just tantalizing upside there.
1: I, I like I like that analogy. I don't know if it's true, but we'll take it.
0: I. I I think it applies there. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. There's, there's a lot to talk about, but you have some, some very uniquely incredible traits. So we'll just we'll talk about your frame. You're around 6'3", listed just under 210 pounds. Essentially, prototypical alpha-wide receiver size. And then for those listening, you want a player comp. College football, think Terrace Marshall. For the NFL, actually very similar to a, a big slot. Like Cooper Cup has basically that exact body type. Or uh, a slightly heavier C D lamb. So, what does baseball do more efficiently than football for training? How can you uh, maintain the weight and stay in shape? I'm assuming that you're in shape, Cole.
1: Yeah. So, I think it's really unfair to Terrace or Paris and uh, Cooper to compare me to those guys because at the end of the day, it's like you know comparing apples to oranges. I mean, if you were to have us, you know, stand next to each other and take our shirts off, you'd think you're looking at. Um, a Hollister model and, uh, you know, like a male man or something. So it's, it's not the same, like the body comps are completely different, but, you know, I mean, some of it is genetics, but honestly, it's, it's kind of optimizing for what we do. I mean, you know, I'll kind of get into this later, but for me, I don't need to run fast. I don't need to, you know, push people off me. I don't need, you know, I just need to move really quick. really efficient and really powerful for one second because that's about as long as a a pitching delivery is so i'm not i can only really speak on the baseball side because i don't know how football training is viewed but baseball is becoming super specific so super individualized and rather than try to cookie cut everybody so that they meet all these goals it's like oh you have bad hip mobility okay let's work on the hip mobility but also um, pattern your delivery so that it doesn't need put a ton of stress on your hip and stuff like that so um and that is kind of where where driveline baseball steps in with that being said i don't know if and the nfl is there yet because i keep seeing these guys on twitter i think tua was the last one he was like balancing on a balance beam with like i don't know a maraca in one hand and he's like trying to catch something and it's just like that can't be that can't be it i am no expert i'm no strength <laughs> coach but that can't be it You I mean you see these guys doing these goofy i mean even derrick henry he was doing like
0: oh chris I mean, carson did it too carson yeah, tried to show him up and i was like what do you got like you guys are just trying to pop a shoulder out or something with these stupid push-ups
1: yeah it's like i i'm by no means i mean i couldn't do what they're doing and so i'm not i respect it, but i can't imagine that's optimal
0: yeah completely agree So drawing another potential parallel between baseball and football. We all know these football players. They're superhumans who can recover from injury abnormally fast, yet even still, the recovery times on some of these guys, think Saquon Barkley in 2019 where he had the high ankle sprain and he came back in two weeks, even though generally uh, the health practitioners recommend six to eight weeks when it's in season and he just really wanted to get back out there and help his team win. Yet, all the medical research has shown the ankle hasn't fully recovered when the guys back out on the field. Baseball, there's games almost every day instead of once a week like football. And then there's more games overall during the season too for baseball. Do you find that baseball players also try to rush back from injuries in season like football? And do you have any personal thoughts on how you try to recover from injuries and what kind of timeline you're setting for yourself.
1: Yeah. So I think with baseball, it's completely different than football. It's really just game to the, truly uh, really just because of the schedule. So like, you know, if you miss one game in the NFL, that's close to, I mean, it's, it's a big chunk I mean, of the season. I mean, I don't know exactly the percentage of I mean, whatever one of 16 is like 7% or of the season. I mean, whereas a, a baseball season is 10 times longer than a football season. So the urge to get a guy out there right away, especially backed by the fact of like re-injury is so common when rushed back, I it's not a, as big of a priority. It's more about just getting it right and, and you know being good with it. And I had to go through that when I had Tommy John surgery. Um, the college I was at, Georgia State, it wanted me to be back in nine months and pitch on opening day of the, the following season. And all the research I did was 15 to 18 months is like the threshold. For Tommy John, um, the most. Sick.
0: Did you send them some articles, and we like, you just email them?
1: No, I really did. Yeah, I did. I did, and I I said, listen, I have to make a selfish decision here, but I can't. I'm not going to come back to Georgia State um, this next year um, because I don't think it's the best of my career. Because for me, if I came back to Georgia State and I was 86 to 88 and throwing strikes, that wins games at Georgia State. But my goals went past that. You know, I was I wanted to pitch professionally. I wanted to pitch in the major leagues and 86 to 88 in, in um, I guess 2016 is when I got hurt. It doesn't, it doesn't get you any luck. So, um, I had to be selfish there um, and kind of go the long route where and then it's for me as far as like the, for recovery and trying to prevent injuries is just controlling what I can control. I can control my diet. I can control my sleep. I can control my arm care and I can control the volume in which I um, throw from day to day. And when, before my injury, I thought I was invincible. So I would like to throw off the mound because I had never been there. So I'd throw off the mound every day. I would eat awful. I, you know, would drink, you know, quite often, um, just lived it up in college. And then you get hurt and it's like, whoa, you know, everything comes crashing down. I listen to my body so much better now. I get way more sleep. I eat a lot cleaner and I don't drink, you know, and all those things you know, kind of add up into, I mean, obviously nobody is, um, injury proof, but it, it just betters my chances. And you don't realize that stuff as a college kid who's just, you know, wants to hang with his buddies and it's not that serious, but it gets pretty serious when, you know, you have to make a decision, well, do I really want to do this? You know, you, know, you don't get any younger. <laughs> yeah. I
0: think, I think you made the right choice. I mean, uh, if you were, if you were sitting with some sitting in an office and some random corporate career that you weren't particularly thrilled about. And uh, someone came up to you from the future and said, "You know, like you could have been in the Texas Rangers organization right now, but instead you you threw out that opening day pitch at Georgia State and set yourself back again." Uh, that's that's not a story that I don't think anyone wants to be written. So I think you made the right choice.
1: Yeah, no, and it, it was hard, but you know, I'm I'm happy with how it turned out.
0: So say that you had a player page on Player Profiler. We all know that most of the players, it's forty time. Speed score, agility, burst score. Those are at the top of the page. What three to five metrics would you want displayed for baseball? And then give percentile ranks for yourself for each. And then after that, you can give, if you were a football player, we can, we can just compare athleticism since I'm sure, I'm sure you'd be, I'm sure you'd be like a, like one of these cam makers, DeAndre Swift types, just ultra athletic, shocking us at the combine (laughs) looking good.
1: Yeah, so uh, not quite in the football department, but in baseball I do some things pretty well. I have 99 um, percentile vertical lift on my fastball. So vertical lift is it's measured by Statcast and like uh, a tool or a, I guess a device called Trackman, and it basically shows how much my ball fights gravity. So vertical lift, a really high vertical lift, is a ball that is really backspun and it kind of pulls its plane. So there's no sink. And it's very flat and throughout history of baseball like flat fastball without movement is bad but what happens to hitters is they're trained to account for gravity when they swing so when they swing when they see the ball and they make the decision to swing they're already accounting for gravity so for my ball to fight gravity it, when they swing they're, they're they can't their eyes are going to do what they've been trained to do for years so they
0: so they're going to swing, under, swing it. under it,
1: exactly. So it's kind of the new wave, and, and the timing of uh, my career has really actually aligned uh, well because that's actually valued. Where 10 years ago, before they had that cast, they would have probably just labeled me as a guy with a flat fastball and he just gets a lot of swings and misses, um, be, you know, because it's hard. But in reality, I'm getting a lot of swings and misses because of that vertical lift um, I talked about. So that would be the, that's my probably my biggest tool that it's quantifiable that, you know, people that kind of separates me. And then,
0: so give that percentile one more time. It's okay. We don't, we don't have to be too humble about this. This is your bragging one. You can brag on this one.
1: In the in the Rangers database, <laughs> in the Rangers database, it's 99. So, I mean, we're out there. I mean, we're on a short list and I'll take it. And it's my own org. It's my own org database. So who knows, but I'll take it <laughs> to this point. And yeah. And then with that kind of becomes a lot of swings and miss. I, I get, I don't know the exact number, but on my fastball just goes hand in hand. It's, it's pretty high. I would estimate it's over you know, 80% um, or 80th percentile or above. I don't know exactly. And then again kind of hand in hand I spin my fastball really well which obviously has something to do with the vertical lift they both go hand in hand because the more it spins the the more it'll fight gravity Uh and I spin my curveball really well too so both of those things are in you know probably the upper 80th percentile as well and then on the football side these are rough estimates I don't have exact numbers other than the bench press I know for a fact I would get zero reps on bench press (laughs) I cannot bench 225 pounds unfortunately but it's not something I've trained super hard to accomplish. Um, I think I can get a five second flat 40. I think I'm thinking about guys who run slower than that and they look pretty slow.
0: I mean, we've seen, we've all seen that Brady 40 yard dash where he's
1: over five seconds. I can dust Brady. (laughs) Yeah. I think I got Brady. Um, And then I know my vertical, Is anywhere from 29 inches to 30 inches, so we're not working with much there either. But those are the three numbers I can give you. Football. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I would say that if you were if you were a skill position player. With those measurables, you'd have to be, I think, a six, eight, 300 hundred pound tight end, yeah, to get drafted with those measurables. So it's not, it's not looking great there.
1: No, because I'm not be- I'm really weak in my upper body. There's no way.
0: Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, I guess they.
1: I would have to be a kicker.
0: Yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. You'd have to be a kicker because I guess even the tight end, <laughs> they'd want you to block sometimes, and then they'd see the the zero bench reps, and they they would start to shake their head. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'd be getting pancaked by uh, safety. Not good. Getting- <laughs>
0: Now, uh, when I make a mistake at work, Matt's going to text me and he'll let me know that I messed up, though he's probably, we all, we know the pod father. He's going to phrase it a little bit more colorfully than you messed up. Definitely got a couple of those texts in season with uh, the DFS lineup genius. Now, as a pitcher, what does it feel like for you when you miss location and you walk a batter? How do you get your mind right after that?
1: Yeah, so for someone like me who um, they kind of label as like a stuff guy, like I have good stuff, it really comes down to execution and throwing the ball over the plate. So knowing that, and I, it's been kind of my uh, Achilles' heel since I started pitching. Is you know had you know good stuff, but um, the walks have always been an issue. So it for me nowadays is I've almost kind of embraced it. Like the nature of the type of pitcher I am is I'm up there trying to strike guys out. So. I'm not up there pitching the contest, so walks are going to happen. But limiting them is the big thing, and that has been my Achilles heel throughout my career. Is I'll go inning, no walks; two innings, no walks; one inning, no walks, and then I'll have an outing where I don't get out of any. I just walk four guys because I let it snowball. It's really mental. I mean, I've thrown I don't know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of baseballs in my life. I don't know the estimate, but a lot. And I can throw it, I've done it for years, I can throw the ball in the zone. So it really comes down to like a mental focus and not, like I said, letting it snowball. And for me, it's more about focusing on external cues versus internal. So a lot of studies have shown something like, okay, just keep your front side closed a little bit longer or don't blow your front side open or keep your eyes on the target. Those cues are generally bad because it makes you think about how you're moving. And instead, a good cue for me is like, throw the ball through the, the catcher's glove. And my body will take care of the rest because I've done it so many times. And actually turning off your mind is really important. That's kind of you know, how I would you know, attack my command, my lack of command.
0: It's interesting that you said that because immediately I was thinking about how when, when you ask these football players that are just super shifty or they're, they're making guys miss in the open field and you say, what were you thinking in that moment? They, they always have the same answer where it's it's like we, what you said where you go, I just want to throw the ball through the glove. They're the same where they go, you know, I really wasn't thinking about much. And that ultimately, there's certain points where at the highest level of competition, you just have to trust yourself and that kind of those split second decisions. And I mean, pitching is such a game of it's not a, it's not a game of inches. It's a game of like millimeters in terms of where you're where you're planting your foot, where your release is, how you're gripping the ball. All those things, if you get in your head, next thing you know, Everything can unravel. So it, it's kind of interesting that I feel like there's a lot of sports like that. And I know in football, it's the same way where they're like, you were going 20 miles an hour on that play. And then you pulled up and tried to sidestep the guy. What were you thinking? Did you know that he was trying to go left on you? And these guys always are, like, I don't even remember that. I just reacted and I saw something, but I don't remember what I saw. So it's kind of interesting to hear that parallel.
1: Yeah, they uh, they talk about how Barry Bonds wasn't a, he found it difficult to coach hitting because guys would come back to the dugout and be like Barry when you were hitting like how did you know if it was a slider or a change-up and he'd be like I would just hit it man I mean I, I didn't think about any of that stuff and some guys just got it you know and I'm definitely not one of those guys but just embracing who I am and just making you know just honestly not taking it too serious you can really get consumed with your flaws really with anything you know it goes for me in the poker, just in the relationships. I mean, you can beat yourself up about it, anything. And instead, I, I like to just see it like, I do some things really well. Let's just try to do that as much as possible and let the cards fall a bit, man.
0: Now, for those unfamiliar with your baseball path in the minors, you have incredibly elite strikeout rates. I would say 97th, 95th, 98th, somewhere in there. It's it's upper percentile strikeout rates. Tell us about optimizing your pitch arsenal and sequencing the different pitches that you throw to try and induce more swings and misses and get those strikeouts?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of when you, this is pretty advanced, so it's not something I really got into until after my first year of pro ball, once we had the technology that we do now with like TrackMan and StatCast, like I mentioned, but it starts with building, finding comps. And in a lot of ways, being unique isn't necessarily good because unique is you're, you're chasing an outlier. So if you do something that, has never been done at the big league level, probably because it doesn't work at the big league level. Not always. There's unicorns and there's, you know, freaks and, you know, but for me, it's like I want to build an arsenal that I know for a fact will get out if I can execute. So the first thing and kind of how you go about it is you find your fastball. So your fastball is often your most used pitch. And so you find other fastballs in the big leagues like mine. And the one that sticks out to me and I've always I've followed and I'm a big fan of is a guy by the name of Ryan Presley. He's a reliever for the Astros. We have very similar fastballs, the same ride, the same spin, the same axis. And so for me it was like, okay, now what is what are his breaking balls look at? Like, how does he attack hitters? How does he go about his day to day? And you know, he's a he throws fastballs up, which pairs really well with the vertical lift, like we talked about, and then he throws curveballs down. And it's a hard, tight, fun curveball. So Basically, for the last three years, I've been trying to be Ryan Plexley, and he's had a phenomenal career, and he's still having a phenomenal career, and he's made a lot of money. And obviously, I'm unique in certain ways, and but it's generally just like finding um, what works in the big leagues you know is going to work in the minor leagues, and then you know you build off that. So um, that that's a big thing for me, um, and just kind of having your off speed play off each other, and guys at the big league level do that the best, and that's why they're there. And then um, kind of with what I talked about earlier with the command stuff and how my arsenal plays is trying to throw balls in general locations versus pinpoint commands. Because I'm blessed with the ability to not have to be perfect in the zone to get out, where a guy who pitches in the low 90s or upper 80s and mixes speeds more than I do he would actually focus on the opposite. Like he knows that he just needs to be on the corners and he'll have a lot of success. And if he gets caught up in the middle, he's going to get punished. I'm the other way. It's like, I'm better off just throwing it in the middle and and letting the hitters like kind of have fits with it versus getting behind in counts, getting them comfortable and letting them, you know, hit balls off the wall.
0: So on still on the baseball topic, which current NFL player would you love more than anything to pitch to? And I mean, let's be honest. You'd strike them out super easily. So, Cole, who do you want to strike out?
1: This is a very easy answer. It's uh, Russell Wilson. It would be super cool. I love Russell Wilson. He's my favorite player. You know, he
0: has a baseball background too. So
1: that's the thing. Is it would be bragging rights forever where I'm from in Seattle to say A, (laughs) I struck out Russell Wilson, and B, it would hold a little bit of weight knowing that he has a history and a background in baseball. So easily, Russell Wilson. I. The 102 in this selection uh, would be nowhere close. This is the this is the T-law.
0: <laughs> so let's say that we pluck Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert, or I would even add uh, what you just mentioned, Russell Wilson, I'd add him to this list. A guy with insane natural arm talent. And we took them out of the NFL and put them into organized baseball. How long would it take them to pitch in the minors and then not totally look like a fish out of water? Or do you think that... These guys are just too far into their NFL careers at this point to ever transition from throwing baseballs to, or from throwing footballs to throwing baseballs.
1: No, I think you know, kind of would just say athletes are athletes, and they're gonna figure it out. Like Mahomes, he actually does have a background in baseball. He was like, I think he even was drafted at uh, a high school, but he and his dad pitched in the MLB. Like the genetics are there. He fi- figured it out pretty quick. You know, probably less than a year, he would be in a velocity range that was respectable. Uh, he's obviously, you know, a very strong guy, it, you know, it would just take a little bit of time, but, but as far as ever being like a difference maker in, at the major league level, I would say they're probably drawing dead. I don't think, um, he, any, it's just, those guys are too good and it's too specific. And it's too, the, the, the skill gap is so, so narrow up there, um, that, they're just they're just too far behind but as far as making them like a serviceable um you know 90 mile an hour arm it it, it probably wouldn't take as much as you'd think especially with the resources that that are out there now and a place even just like driveline baseball i mean they they take football players all the time mostly got most of them come out of college you know it's like quarterback who had a good arm and threw hard in high school it's like okay let's give it a shot but it's not impossible, but to be like a serviceable big league pitcher, I would say you're chasing um, a really, really unlikely outcome.
0: Yeah, I like to hear it. It seems like you, you guys heard it. I'm just going to put words in Cole's mouth. He thinks he has a higher baseball ceiling than Patrick Mahomes. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've actually said the name multiple times now. Drive Line Baseball. Give me a little background information on Drive Line, the place that you've been training and developing your pitches. And for those unfamiliar, we can make the parallel to Exos and how Exos is the cutting edge place for football athletes like Jamar Chase and Rondale Moore to train. Can you tell us a little bit about Driveline and how you got started training there?
1: Yeah, so um, for me, like Driveline is a lot more than about just helping me with my pitches. They've essentially allowed me to check every box along the way, and I found them in 2013. Uh, How I found them is a funny story. So I, at the time, was much more involved in Magic the Gathering, the card game. I still like it, but with COVID and, um, you know, just other interests, I, it's something I'll always love. I just don't do it as much. But when I was in junior college, I was still, like, really into it, you know, going to, like, you know, tournaments all the time. And um, I'm,
0: I'm unfamiliar. Is that kind of like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, give I or take? take.
1: I mean, it's a trading card game. Yes, it's definitely a little bit more um, strategic, and okay. it's, there's actually a direct correlation with poker players and magic. It's it's, um, it's kind of how I got my start in poker, or interest in poker, I should say. Is just being
0: so it's the it's the gateway drug to
1: poker. Uh, yes and no. I mean, n- not all poker players play magic, but it, there is some correlation. You you see it a lot. And it's just a good game. It's a game I played as a kid and then I got more serious into once I had a little bit of money to like pay for the more expensive cards. But anyways, the story goes, I am at junior college with a good friend of mine. His dad had a big warehouse that was a baseball facility. And he said, hey man, we had a guy he just came through and he, uh, he rented the attic of our facility and he wants to train baseball players out of there. And I told him I had a friend that plays Magic and he's like, oh, I got to meet him because this guy apparently played magic too. He said, Bring him by. So um, I went and I walked into this attic, and there's Kyle Bodie, who now is a pretty big uh, name in the baseball world. But I then was, you know, just getting his start. And, um, you know, we just became friends. I just kind of would talk to him um, that day. We like kind of hit it off and BS for a couple hours. And then I kind of mentioned to him that um, I was dealing with some like elbow tightness and I was in. Uh, between transfer or uh, transitioning into being a, short, uh, a pitcher from a shortstop, and so I was just my body was just having some like natural adaption to the new stress, and and he mentioned that he had this new machine he was testing on guys it was called a Mark Pro, which is kind of like a stem machine. And now again, fast forward eight years later, they're in like every minor league locker room. There's like five of them, and it just promotes blood flow. And he just let me use it for free. So every night after I would throw, I would drive down to his facility and use this machine. And it, and it bounced, it brought back my arm. And I would just listen to him, him tell stories and talk and his ideas. And finally, my elbow got better. And it was about six weeks later. And it was the summer by that time. And I just said, well, what do you actually do here? And he goes, well, I train baseball players. And at the time, I had no real sense of direction. I didn't really have... Um, you know, my pitching coaches at uh, Pierce College where I was at were, were phenomenal, but I didn't really have like a structured warm-up program, recovery, lifting. Um, I didn't have any of that stuff in place. And Kyle just taught me what he believed was ideal. And um, I started training there and I've been training there ever since. So that's that's kind of the story of how I met Kyle and got started. I,
0: that's an awesome story, especially with, uh, I'm, I'm a big baseball head. So knowing where where Bodie is now and uh, seeing where you are now based on where both of you were at the time. It, it's a, it's incredible that uh, you're both. Yeah. I, I just like those. I don't, I, w- I don't want to say rags to riches. Cause I'm going to get cliche alerted on this, but it's one of those things.
1: Kyle for sure. Not me yet, but Kyle for sure. Um, Kyle is doing very well. He's with
0: the reds now, right? He's, a, he, is he the pitching coach yeah, there? Yeah. He,
1: um... Yeah, he's still the you know CFO of Driveline, or I'm not sure exactly his title, but the main guy, at Driveline, and he is the director of analytic, or director of director of pitching analytics, or something of that nature with the Reds. So he definitely is moving in the right direction.
0: Now you truly have one of the best curveballs in all of baseball right now. It's got like 99th, hundredth percentile spin on that pitch. Giving it incredible movement. Talk to us about how you designed that pitch in the Driveline Lab, and was there that one moment where you just you just look at your where you looked at where you look at Kyle, or you just kind of thought to yourself, "Holy shit, we've created just
1: this absolutely filthy pitch." Yeah. So um, first, I'll just start with back when I showed up at Driveline in 2013, there was one employee at Driveline, and it was Kyle. Over the years, they've expanded that. Kyle, Kyle and I truly haven't worked together on baseball since, I don't know, 2016. He's more of like a mentor to me now and just a good friend and somebody I hit up for advice. Or, you know, if I want to go grab dinner and we're in Arizona together, you know, we'll go talk or whatever. But um, but the story with the curveball is I had reached the all-star break of my 2019 season. Up in this point, I tried everything under the sun to develop a breaking ball and I just was not there yet. Um, really inconsistent and so instead of uh, just taking a couple of days off I flew from Myrtle Beach uh, and I flew into Seattle and I said hey we're gonna in these two days we're gonna work and learn a curveball and my buddy Rob Hill who's now at the Dodgers was there and he was working with me he's like let's do it and we started throwing it and he showed me a grip and we had all the data and all the technology there to, to measure the metrics of the pitch and he's like that's really good it, 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 it truly took 30 minutes and he was like wow like, <laughs> he just showed me the grip that I still throw now and he's like that's really good just do that and he's like keep doing that and then my my season kind of took off on uh, the second half once I had that weapon to use it really opened up because I was primarily a fastball only pitcher for my first year and a half in pro ball which although I had a good enough fastball to get away with it it still makes it much more difficult and just just them respecting the breaking ball totally changed everything for me. So, yeah, Rob Hill was the man on that one. And the quote he said was, yes, yeah, just do that. <laughs>
0: just do that. It, hopefully it's that easy for everyone. Just just do that. That's that's incredible. I was thinking it was going to be a, like a week-long kind of – I mean, I'm, I'm a coding nerd. So I was picturing like one of those coding boot camps where – You code for 80 hours that week and then you come out and you feel quote unquote proficient. So I was imagining that you're throwing every other day for a week or two just kind of in the lab. So it's pretty incredible that naturally I think that kind of speaks to the way that you must perceive uh, other people's movements and then be able to repeat that and that you must have some really innate sense of body awareness and being able to to kind of recreate that yourself because ultimately you only you can throw that pitch it's not like someone else can throw it and it's your pitch so i think it's kind of interesting how you picked up on that and then 30 minutes later we now have maybe not fully formed but we have uh we we at this point have a very more than serviceable curveball
1: yeah so that that's the thing i'll say is by no even now i'm still working on my curveball but from going from not having a breaking ball at all to having one that projects to, to get guys out in, at the major league level you know in a day, really just speaks to Driveline and the people that, that work there and Rob specifically Rob and Eric Jaggers, who is also with the Reds, who's another uh, close friend of mine who's helped me along the way with the curveball. And I mean, to be honest, yes, I'm the one throwing it, but the people that've had surrounded me surrounding me in the last like eight years of my career, just I'm really lucky because there's a lot of bad information out there. I mean, it's no different than fancy football. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, not maliciously by any means, but they're just not as up to date or as uh, fluent in, you know, what is going on to make baseball players better in 2021. And I'm just super lucky for the last eight years, like all the minds that have gone into, even in college, at driveline, uh, coaches that have gone into essentially creating me and, you know, what I do have been really bright, really, and really good at their job. So it's been a group effort for sure.
0: So what does a typical session look like at driveline in terms of the length of it, the type of training, time spent where you're looking at uh, replay video footage in slow motion behind a computer versus actually you're just on the mound throwing and gathering the data that way.
1: So yeah, so it's different from day to day. Um, Some days you'll just come in, it'll be a recovery day. So you'll just have a warm up. You'll throw um, some weighted balls to get your arm you know loose, you'll play some catch, you'll do your arm care to shut it down, and then you'll get out of there. And then there's days where your higher intent days, which you'll also lift on those days. So you'll come in and it'll just be a throwing program, but much more volume and higher intent, you're throwing the ball harder, and then you'll lift afterwards. And kind of the idea with that is you want your recovery days to truly be recovery days. So you'd rather pack on your heavy, intense days throwing with your weightlifting days so your body's just gassed, and then you have a, a set number of days to recover from. The other days are pitch design days, which is when you come in, and, and that's what we did on the All-Star break to design the curveball. As you come in, you throw a couple fastballs, they, get, they collect the data, and then somebody's standing there who works the driveline. On that day, it was Rob. He goes, well, I think a curveball would, would go really well with this, um, with this fastball. So try this grip. Throw the pitch. Okay, the data comes up. Okay, well, we need, you know, it's different from player to player. But, you know, for me, it's like, okay, well, we need to tighten that up. It's a little bit loopy. It's a little bit slow. So try to throw this one harder. And then you just you go and and you just get the direct feedback from the um, from the technology, but also direct feedback from a high speed uh, camera that is basically mapping your hand as the ball comes out of your hand. So not only can you see exactly what how the pitch is moving, so you can see how your hand is, you know, delivering the ball, and it just expedites the prior, uh, you know, the process. The eye test is great, but it can only give you so much. I mean, everybody can see with their eyes, wow, that's a nasty breaking ball, but why or how? And that's kind of what driveline in pitch design sessions like sets out to do. And it just you can get what some people used to do in a month, which is. Just throw the curveball until it feels comfortable and it looks good and it's getting results you can do in a day or 30 minutes, like, for for me. And then the last day, or not the last day, but the last day that I'll talk about would be, like, a testing day. You come in and they put you on the force plates and they have you jump so you see how much force you put into the ground. And this is more in the weight room, so, like, it's basically to track your progress in the weight room. You know, you do a various test to see, like, if you're if you're increasing the force you can put in the ground and just overall strength and testing days go as far as like you meet with a physical therapist he'll take you through a bunch of range of motions to see if you're like you know if you lose a ton of range of motion in your shoulder you know you might be at risk for an injury so he'll prescribe you a couple days off or you know some recovery days in a row to kind of get that to bounce back and They don't leave any stone unturned, that is for sure. Sometimes it can get a little bit overwhelming for guys because because they don't leave any stone unturned, you become consumed and you almost think you're like some imperfect player, you know, because nobody's going to come in and just crush the strength, have elite stuff and move super well and be unbelievably flexible and all these things. So I tell guys, like, once you know who you are, just try to make small, you know, small... Uh, Improvements and don't get consumed by not being, uh, you know, a perfect athlete, which none of us are. So
0: early on in that answer, you talked about how uh, Rob looks at you and goes, you know, based on this fastball, a curveball pairs well. So for someone that might not know baseball very well, talk about for how long, so that the mound to the home plate, it's about 60 feet apart. And when they say pair well, what they mean is that your fastball and curveball are going to out of the hand, and initially the way they move are going to look fairly similar to the batter, where the batter's not going to know, is this a fastball in the 90s, or is this a 78 mile an hour curveball that's about to drop right as I swing? Do you have any idea of kind of how long those two pitches are going to look similar, where the batter perceives your fastball and curveball looking like the same pitch before one of them rises up and the other just, the tail falls off and it completely drops down? Is that like 20 feet in, 10 feet in, or do you not have a...
1: I think they estimate a hitter has to react if he's going to swing or not when the pitch is 20 feet out of your hand. So about a third of the way there. And so, yeah, anything that can, they call it tunnel um, optimally off each other. So a guy who throws a sinker, a ball that's going to, a fastball that's going to sink down should throw a slider that's going to split the plate side to side. So you've got guys that work horizontally, and then you guys got like me who work up and down. So I want to throw fastballs up, curveballs down. And then there's a, I'm kind of an extreme example, but there's a lot of ways you can take it. I mean, you can work uh, fastballs up and in and then sliders down and away. I just chose to work fastball middle up and curveball middle down, you know, and, and, and just that comes from, again, finding comps in the MLB. Oh, this guy's made a career off of doing this just like me. What does his numbers look like? What are his metrics? And then trying to, you know, obtain those metrics in my arsenal.
0: So how do you think that your awareness of baseball and being so acutely aware of all the analytics behind baseball, how does that translate to dynasty? And what are a few concepts that you've picked up on faster than potentially just Joe fantasy that picks it up and wants to get good at dynasty?
1: Yeah. So kind of back to what I just said is uh, like comps are really good. So you know, like the whole thing with Devonta Smith right now is essentially for him to be a wide receiver one year in and year out in fantasy, he would have to be a unicorn. He does. He'd have to be a player. We've, We've never seen anything like him, and that's not necessarily good. That's why someone like me wants to shy away from Devonta Smith. is let somebody else, you know, um, have you know have you know have him and have a lot of success. I mean, because for me, you know, I want to chase the guys that that look like the alphas or they look like the three down backs and. Um, that, that the, the whole concept you know comes from that baseball background and and not just being a film guy that's like wow this guy's always open like i need to have him it's like the guy who has the the big breaking hammer curveball but he never throws it in the zone or something you know that that's useless i mean it's just not a it's not a tool that is ever going to play because it, it doesn't matter and um so that that is a big thing and then just focusing on the details that matter something that comes to mind is how um you know 40 yard dash isn't super important for wide receivers it's more about you know their size and their body of work in college and um you know if they have the my ball mentality you know that that kind of thing that you don't necessarily need to see on film to know that a jamar chase is gonna be a phenomenal uh football player um, in the nfl and um then just like finding your strengths, um, that kind of comes from baseball. So with that is like optimizing your process, I guess, is what I would, oh, uh, hold on, that's not making much sense. What the hell am I writing? What was I writing here?
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah, these, every now and then you check back a note. I do this sometimes and I'm like, like, what the hell is this chicken scratch? <laughs> I mean, I feel like you gave a really good answer for that one. Just the first two so if if we can't decipher this
1: okay yeah just uh, yeah just uh, something while, while we stop though, something that we skipped over is this part right here that i thought was um i highlighted it i know i talked about um the pitching motion being like one second long but like i think um as far as like what i would do if i were to like train uh, football players, kind of using my driveline background, would be would be good to talk about that. We we I just didn't mention. I don't know if you want them there or not. If you if you don't think it's important, then we can keep going. No, let, let's talk
0: about it. I mean, we can. I'll I'll just figure out what's in the outtakes, what's not. But I, as a just a baseball analytics nerd, want to hear your thoughts on this. And I know that everyone out there wants to hear about it because I think there are so many parallels between baseball, a sport that has been so much more like quote figured out analytically than football and i think it's fascinating to hear that athlete perspective where Mm -hmm. you're aware of the numbers you try and incorporate them but also at the same time that like you're the man behind them that's doing the action that so many of us like myself included wish that we could be doing so i think all your insights there that's i think that's going to be for many people the most just like just the fast most fascinating part of this so yeah before we keep going yeah let's go back to that so yeah we're talking about wide receivers and how so many of these guys it's like, why can't you just, Rashad Bateman, why can't you just be 205 like we thought you were? Why can't you just play at that weight? So uh, talk about more of your thoughts on that and what maybe football could learn from baseball.
1: Yeah, so for for me, I would say like the lowest hanging fruit in football is that, you know, people will tell you it doesn't matter, but BMI matters. Being, you know, hashtag thick is important for, <laughs> for you know, fancy football. Specifically, obviously, you can have a role in the NFL being thin. I, again, we're talking about fantasy football here. You know, and like if you look at the top uh, twelve wide receivers year in and year out, like ten out of twelve every year, and sometimes more, are like the same build. It's DeAndre Hopkins, Devonte Adams, Michael Thomas, the, these type of you know Allen Robinson, these type of alpha 6'2", built big. Right, right. These like and, and nobody can control their height. You can't genetically you know, just get taller. Everybody would be six four or six five if they if they could be. But what you can do is you can you can put on good uh muscle mass and make up for, you know, like a guy like DJ Moore. I mean, he's a thick dude and he plays that way. You know, Debo Samuel, not super tall, thick, plays that way. And it's in um, you know, at the end of the, the end of the day for fantasy you, you want guys who get in the end zone and, you know, throughout history You know those alpha my ball mentality guys you know score the most points because they're either demanding the ball you know in between the 20s or they're scoring touchdowns and that's that's what I would look for so and and it it goes into running backs too I mean you know the size you know the size and speed score um, that you guys have popularized is really important I mean being fast yet big is very valuable, and you can, can project guys really well. So, if I was looking at training athletes, you know, that were draft prospects or like my college uh, running backs and wide receiver room, you know, the first thing would be would just to put some weight on them, put some muscle mass. And the one thing with that is everybody has like an optimal playing weight, and I, you know, as an example, I've really pushed that in both directions. You know, I was up to 225 pounds at one point and eating as much food as possible and drinking shakes and and i basically just got fat and it didn't work you know my velo went down but i wouldn't have know you know maybe i would have thrown 100 some guys can do it there's guys with big you know dad bods and big bellies in the big leagues that throw 100 miles per hour it just wasn't for me so then i had to slim down and everybody and, but if you don't even strive to to figure out that process and what's optimal for you i think you're doing yourself a disservice as an athlete because you know, who wouldn't want Will Fuller to be 220 pounds? Not saying he can just do that. It's not an easy thing. And I'm not saying that Will Fuller not being 220 pounds uh, makes him, you know, have a bad work ethic because that's not it easy. But in general, I would, you know, push my guys in that direction.
0: I was going to say, just to add on to that, I feel like I would really push them all to gain weight and essentially say, you know what? If you gain the weight and you become that 210-pound alpha-wide receiver type, and you're so slow and terrible at football, chances are you're less likely to succeed in general. And sorry to say it, but we might have figured out earlier in life that this is probably not the right either position for you or career path to be an NFL player. And that if you're a running back and you can't, you can never get to 200 pounds without sacrificing some speed, that you're probably not going to be cut out for running back. And that we've seen more successful wide receivers play at 180, 190 than running backs. So maybe that's the better position for you where we know that you're just an innate football talent and we're, we're trying to optimize your body for the position. And I don't know why they don't do that more.
1: Yeah. Optimization is the big thing. I mean, just because you you can't look like DK Metcalf doesn't mean you can't have a career in the NFL, but your career is going to look a lot different than Metcalf and your role is. And identifying that early, then you can start to specialize in things that you have players that comp like you, you know, it's, it's kind of a theme here, a lot of comps and, you know, things like that. But Um, Well, I think
0: that's super important. That's how a lot of my my four-year projections that I do for all my episodes relies heavily on player comps. And I think I mentioned it with the DJ Moore Calvin Ridley episode that yes, they have fairly similar projections, but that I was actually more confident in the DJ Moore one because we've seen more guys with similar career paths and similar prospect profiles to DJ Moore. And that Ridley's actually, there's not a lot of guys that are similar to him. And In some ways that's concerning and that Yes, Ridley had like 80 more fantasy points than more last year. But in terms of sustainability and seeing guys have those long careers, the player comp is so important. You don't want to chase the first to ever do it. It's much more comfortable, safer, and higher probability to say, we've seen 30 guys do it before. So this guy has a good chance of doing it too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of the idea. And then the other thing with like training, um, you know, NFL players would be once you kind of had the, the, the frame is to start focusing on the right details and something that comes to mind is that you know we've seen a trend of you know uh, agility being really important for tight ends so i don't need my tight end to run a 4 five forty, but you know i want him to you know be quick and you know run a good three cone and things like that and you can train for that you know i mean it's so different than how i train to put force on the ground and have a one second throwing motion you can train to have good agility and just focusing on the details that matter i think is how I would go about it. But through that is you, you would have to find the data and have the numbers to back it that this is why these these are the details that matter. And then uh, the last thing that comes to mind with my baseball bracket ground is something that is thrown around a lot. It's like in order to throw hard, you have to throw hard. And it seems like a weird quote, but you can't throw 50% effort and catch every day and then on your seventh day, go throw 95 miles an hour. You have to train to like throw hard and you have to throw hard a lot and to build that arm strength and to build that adaption so that your arm also holds up. And these QBs that it's a copycat league in the NFL. And Josh Allen is the guy that kind of sticks out to me right now is they want these guys that can make all these in Mahomes, obviously these crazy throws and these, you know, off balance. And he's got the arm and he's got, you can't you can't teach what Josh Allen has. And I've seen through baseball, 10 years ago, they didn't think you could teach velocity. Now it's proven you can, but it's because people train for velocity. And I don't know if a lot of QBs are out there training to make all the throws. Are they training? Are they playing long toss with the football so that eventually one day they can build up and throw the ball 70 yards? Are they training? Because Mahomes does. Mahomes is out there. You know, you see tape of him on Twitter. He's doing these goofy throws, these off-balance throws. So it's not an accident when the game's on the line, he can make them. And a guy, you know, like, I don't know, name your Phillip Rivers isn't. And obviously age plays a big factor and maybe that's a bad example. But what I'm saying is if I was had a QB who had a shot at the NFL, I would have him out there, out there rolling out every day, throwing balls as far as he can so that he has a Zach Wilson, like ascension in the, in the NFL draft and he gets paid. I just wonder if that is not focused on because, you know, it's like you see these cute quarterbacks throwing and they, they do five slants, they do five outs, they do five curls, and they do five fly routes, and they're all in the pocket and they're all clean pockets, you know, and they just throw them and then they go home. And it's like it's, it's like what in baseball right now it's you should try to train for what's valued in the big leagues. So back in two thousand five, you know, on base percentage was really valued in the money ball era and all that. Right now. Making the, making all the throws is what you always hear with these guys who go really high in the draft, and it's it's a it's because that's what people are thinking is value. And I'm not saying it's right, but if I was trying to get my junior quarterback that I recruited since he was 17 paid in the draft, that's what I would be trying to get him to do: is, is flash on tape, and you know, long toss would be a great way to go about building the arm strength. And I don't think it's true that Josh Allen has something you can't teach, Josh Allen. How- Allen is very gifted, but there's no doubt in my mind. You know, if you take a competent quarterback and you give him a year and 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 put him through the ringer as far as testing his arm, he could really improve in those areas.
0: I think that what you just said that could end up being a million dollar idea. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we'll see. Maybe, maybe we're just so slow to the game, and these NFL execs listen to this podcast and chuckle at us like, ha 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 ha. ha. We've been doing this for years. And maybe
1: that's what that's what that could be the
0: case, but I actually, I've never heard that before. And I would assume that everyone listening hasn't heard that before. So I love that. Yeah. I was, I was just sitting there. I feel like my jaw was dropping as I was thinking about it. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously we want them to be, you want to be a good NFL player, but at the same time, like it's, it's a career when you're an athlete, it's not, you're not just, yeah, you're not just out there like, Oh, I just love this game or whatever. Ultimately, You want it to pay the bills one day. So yeah, Yeah, why not emulate whatever the most profitable skill is, which is being a a quarterback that, that makes all the throws. Yeah, all the throws. That's
1: what I hear. That's why everyone loves Zach Wilson.
0: All right, so we're going to transition off of football and baseball now. You're also a professional poker player. And then newsflash to anyone that's unaware about the minor league wage scale. But from my understanding, most minor leaguers work another job of some type during the year. What separates you from a more casual poker player who considers themselves, oh, I'm decent at poker? What's the difference?
1: Yeah, so poker is just about finding edges any way you can. I mean, it can be as simple as just, I don't drink when I play, you know, I don't drink alcohol because a lot of people drink alcohol or it can be as simple as, um, you know, I have a stop loss um, because it's poker is very day-to-day like i made this amount today and i lost this amount today but in the end it's a it's a long run and it's kind of like investing so i could have an awful week and you know go 5k in the hole but you know i look back six months from now and I, it was super profitable six months and finding edges is important and i try to find them where i can obviously in a, you know with good morals you know i'm not like a scummy guy or anything but <laughs> i would say what separates me Um, is just you know I put in the work Um, I my passion for poker rivals my passion for baseball and I'd actually say I'm in a similar place in poker that I am in baseball like a low-level minor league player so like I'm just a small-time poker player you know I make my $50 an hour I don't play super high stakes but it pays the bills and it's it's fun and I enjoy it put a lot of work in with coaches you know I've had multiple coaches Um, I work with solvers which is like game theory optimal uh, computer programs that essentially run a hand for you um, a simulation you know um, millions of times and then it gives you the optimal strategy based on what bet sizes you should use um, what frequencies you should check and what frequencies you should back, and you know, poker is a lot like ba- uh, baseball and fantasy football is that you can make it as complex as you want. It's a super complex game. And at the end of the day, good fundamentals will make you money, but to eke out every small edge you can having like a really good understanding of the game and having a really, you know, they call it like a theory based approach. Like I would, I would definitely took that side of the, of the game and, and wanted it to be, cause it, it's just fun that way. I mean, you, you can you learn so much, and it almost becomes a, a battle with yourself of like how much you can improve. And you'll think, okay, in in the game, you know, or in a game, you know, I'll bet seventy percent uh, pot on the river, and then I can go home and take that exact hand, and the computer will be like, the optimal sizing was thirty percent given the runout, um, this board text, texture, and then so just
0: always taking notes, revising,
1: right? And it, and it's just you can never. Be a complete poker player. There's always a spot, there's always a part of your game, mental, you know, mental or strategic that needs work. And I always love the idea of all the work I put in will eventually correlate into results, which isn't true in baseball. You can be the hardest working dude and you get hurt, or you just don't have the the ceiling and you don't make it. But in poker, I truly believe anybody can be an elite poker player if they put in the work. And that's what was really attractive to me, and it, and it kind of came when I was rehabbing my elbow because I had all this time, and it was like I was—it was an obsession. Um, and it, it, it's not nearly—you know—I have the skill set now to like always make money in poker. At least I believe so. Um, so I'm not as into it, but I'm still trying to improve. And and it's it's just a hobby that you know has made me money.
0: I'm I'm just picturing everyone at Georgia State like when, like when's Cole throwing opening day, and you're just making loads of money online poker resting the elbow knowing that you've got your whole life ahead of you and <laughs> why why pour all your pour all your eggs into this one basket for this opening day start when you're only halfway recovered that's actually i feel like that's a great time to do
1: it and it was like when i was rehabbing my elbow i was at the age you know i was 22 you know my dad helped me out a lot financially in college but he kind of just said you know hey you know if you're going to move home and just rehab this up on your own, like, you know, you're still my son, you know, I'm not going to like let you live under a bridge, but like, you know, it's kind of time to, to start figuring it out. I had about 4,000 bucks. I'd saved up my name and that, that was my, uh, poster bankroll. And I just, just went from there went from there. Yeah.
0: I feel like it's kind of like people with their DFS bankrolls when they're like, oh yeah, all these years ago I had a hundred dollars or I had $2,000 or whatever. And now my bankroll is a million dollars a year.
1: Yeah, I'm so. not a, uh, I'm not quite that successful, but <laughs> we're not, we're not quite that high stakes <laughs> yeah, yet. <laughs> I'm doing well. I, I've, I've made it work. It, it is the other thing that it, I don't see myself being a professional poker player for the rest of my life, just because job security and I'll eventually have a family and there's a lot. I mean, the, the optimal time to play poker is normally at night when there's no insurance, like I said, and you know, no job security, anything like that. So, but the, but why, why it works right now is. You know, I can train in the morning and then show up the casino at night. Or before COVID, I can show up the casino at night, play. If I need to get up early that morning, I just leave. You know, I don't have a boss. You know, and as long as I set a schedule and I make sure I get my hours and put in my volume, you know, it'll it'll take care of itself. So it works right now really well with being a minor early player.
0: So at what point did you know that you were good enough to be able to make money on poker? How how long into it was it? Like, a, were you a month in, six months in? When did you realize that? Where you had some type of sustainable strategy, where you know that this isn't something where you're just about to blow your entire bankroll in the next week or two.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a natural progression, but I would say it probably took me two years to like know I was consistently possible. And a lot of guys will hear about me being a professional poker player, and they'll be like, "Dude, you gotta teach me." And then I'll be like, "I don't think you realize the commitment that it really takes to be a consistent winner." And they're like, "No, no, I'll do it." And then most of them, you know, washed out. And, and it's not for everybody, but for whatever reason, I just loved it enough to stick with it. And I got my teeth kicked in uh, many, many times. I went broke many, many times where I pretty much had no money to show. Even uh, as recently as Austin in 2018, after I had played professionally for a year and a half, I went off to college and paid, you know, for my, my fifth year of college kind of on my own, um, off the money I made from poker. Then I got drafted in the pro ball, you know, didn't sign for much. So, all, you know, I had a whole summer to live and I show up the off season of or 2018 and my bankroll had really dwindled and I was like, well, I'm just going to do what I've always done. And then I had a bad stretch. You know, it's like, a, I don't know, close to like a 10K downswing, and I had to go get a job. And um, that, that, that's part of it. That's part <laughs> of being a poker player. Like they tell you, and I didn't believe it in 2015, you know, when I was 21 years old, they say everybody goes to broke. It's going to happen. And I said, no way. No, I got oh dude, I got five thousand dollars, dude. The buy-in is five hundred. How could I ever lose ten buy-ins? And it's like, dude, if you think you can run if you think you're running bad, one day you'll run worse. Like it's it's just it's part of being a professional gambler and it's something that I had to learn the hard way. I was better for it every time. I always, you know, you you when you go broke, you're like, Oh, I'm never playing again. Program It's awful. I'll just get a job and work. You always find a way back. And then it, it, it itself out and at least it had for me up to this point.
0: Man, I love it. There's so many parallels to to DFS where you, you have a, a bad few weeks. I know during the 2020 season, I think there were three or four weeks in a row, kind of mid season where it, it felt like the most random lineups were hitting and uh, the DFS lineup genius was, there was a, there was a few weeks of struggles. And every, every single week, it just felt like a slog working on refining it. And it can be kind of depressing during the week when you think I spent this entire week and all that happened is I lost 80% of the money I put in, but then all of a sudden the good strategy and the hard work's rewarded and those upswings, it makes it worth it, it, makes it profitable.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely the the thing that, I mean, poker, once you have a strategy in place, it's 98% mental. And it is definitely hard to put in a ton of work and it not be, you know, you not have the results and it can be really discouraging because lo- I always say like, if you are a poker player and you've stuck with poker and you like recreational play, it's probably because you won the first time you went to the casino because losing feels so much worse then winning feels good. If you ever just showed up at the casino, like had your 200 bucks and didn't know what was going on and you just like lost it and you're like, well, that was awful. Why would I ever do that again? Like you have to have won or had some success to like stick with it because it's it's a brutal game and it's very unforgiving. It's a lot like baseball, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of parallels with the mental game of baseball. And, you know, just ride the wave, never too high, never too low. And just, you kind of become numb to the failures of it. It's just part of it. And you just have to embrace it. So, are there
0: any funny stories that you can share? I feel like uh, there's so many movies about poker with these these crazy characters. You sit down at the table, and there's just the most interesting individual sitting across from you. Tell us, uh, give just give us like one of your favorite stories where it makes you smile every time, or you just shake your head, thinking, "How did, how was I in this situation? How did we get to this moment?"
1: Okay, so the story I want to talk about when I read this on the show sheet is how I met my friend Andrew. It's actually it's not a crazy story. Um, Andrew and I are really close now, but the story goes: playing cards. I'm a poppy, 21-year-old, barely had any money, but I thought I was rich kind of guy. And I was playing, and I was I was pretty um, confident, you know. And I was you know playing in a, a game that I shouldn't be playing in financially. It was just too big of a game at the time. And this guy who was you know in his 30s sat down and. Kind of, you know, you can just tell he's been there before. He's a little bit more talkative than most, and and we end up getting into a hand, and I and I bluff him on the river for a big, you know, I make a big bed and he hems and haws and shows me his cards, and ah, you know, and he mucks his hand, he throws it away, and then I instantly turn up my cards and show him. I remember him, and I'm sitting there and I'm and I'm I'm looking at him, and I'm you know, and it was a really memorable hand, so I'll, I'll never forget what he looks like. Sure enough. Maybe a week later, my fiance and I go to a Tacoma Rainiers game, which is the AAA affiliate of the Mariners, and we're sitting right behind home plate, and I look down, and sure enough, the same dude is holding a radar gun, scouting this game, and I'm like, that is the same guy that I was playing poker with the other night, and I'm like, no way, no way, no way, so the story goes, I see him again, and we start talking, and we we find out that we have this uh, mutual interest in baseball. Turns out this guy was a pitched in the big leagues. He's a scout now for the Pirates. He's coached in professional baseball for over 10 years. and he ends up becoming one of my best mentors and, and best friends really uh, over the next you know five years or so. And the story came full circle in the fall of 2019 where uh he ended up actually scouting uh the arizona fall league all-star game which i pitched him and so it's just crazy for me to look back on the kid i was when i you know when i was younger and i was just being some asshole to this dude that now is submitting that's now um, a a good friend and mentor yeah now he's also submitting scouting reports in the pirates database on me and and ended up being you know a really good friend of mine and we had the baseball connection and it's just you know it's. It's funny, the the baseball world is really a really small world and so is the poker world.
0: That 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 is a good story. I know I feel like you undersold or you tried to undersell and you're like, oh, it's not that funny or it's not that good. That's a good story. So I I don't think you need I don't think you need to preface that in the future. You can just be like, I've got this good story for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Now, before I get you out of here, Cole, everyone listening is waiting for that bold dynasty take. And I have a feeling you're gonna give it to them. Tell us, what is your bold dynasty take for 2021.
1: All right. I believe that there is a case to be made, and you should prepare for Cam Akers to be the RB1 in dynasty. All right, I believe that there is a case to be made and you should prepare for Cam Akers to be the RB1 in Dynasty. So Matthew Stafford comes to town who is historically a gunslinger who loves to target running backs, which will stretch the defense. So the the issue with um, Akers in 2020 is he was number five in the NFL in the stack box, which I actually learned from another – Twitter account, Drew um, Drew O, I think it's Drew FF Bean Counter on Twitter. Yeah, super sharp guy. He puts out some great analytics stuff. And he was talking about how, yeah, super. he's, he's great. Um, and he was talking about how Akers and Daryl Henderson faced two completely different sack box rates, you know, like um, Cam Akers was number five in the NFL, and he was doing the comp of why, like, Henderson isn't going to overtake Akers. But what I saw is the reason the boxer sacked is because Jared Goff is Mr. You know Dink and Dunk. You know he, you know his yards per attempt and you know his air yards are, are really low. Um, and just he, he, just doesn't have the ability staff, uh, Stafford does, where the defense has to respect him. So it's a projection that you know some, some running lanes are going to be open. And and when you look at all the situations of these running backs these young running backs because obviously the cmc's and dalvin's have this as well but he's really the only one out of swift J.C. acres and gibson and, and even clyde that i think has a true 25 touch, uh 25 touch per game uh potential um and they we've seen that he's the only guy we've really seen that with um you know in the playoffs, he was their guy when when the game was on the line when their season was on the line, he was, he was eating. And um, obviously, he checks all the boxes athletically. He is younger than ETN and over a year younger than uh, um, Najee Harris. He's still just 21. And I'm not saying to go out and send CMC for Acres, but you can legitimately get Acres in a first for CMC. I mean, the... There is starting to get some momentum with you know people are starting to get on board with this. I've been I've been the minute Stafford got traded to LA, I was pounding the table for Akers. He's easily my highest owned player in Dynasty, and I've been a fan fan of his since he was in college. So maybe this is a little bit biased, but I genuinely believe that Akers... People are afraid you're buying him at your at his ceiling um, as like the RB nine or something in startup, and I don't even think it's close. I think his ceiling. Is you know in that Saquon CMC tier, so I, I am extremely excited about Cam Akers, and I think um, if you can go get him, the price is only going to go up.
0: I love it. Yeah, it's it's kind of what I when I built the case for Antonio Gibson and what why I recorded that first Codebreaker episode on him is I saw so many people saying you got to sell him while the hype is high and he was only on the field this percent of the time and he only did this and if you just look at the season stat line of acres you're like oh okay he was that that's an above average rookie season but what you're missing is how unbelievably dominant he was down the stretch and that this guy essentially won a playoff game for them with a backup quarterback where they just rode him in that offense and that you're not buying acres if 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 Acres. Assuming that Akers is a bell cow next year, which I think we both think so, you're not buying him at his peak right now because the reason that he's not the the consensus RB3 in dynasty is because there is that tinge of uncertainty of if he can do it or not. But that the second people see he can do it, boom, the price shoots way up. We saw it with Dalvin Cook. Like You see it with these guys all the time where the second that they put it together, oh, too late. You thought you were going to send this offer out? Don't even think about it add a first and then some and now you can send it out and that 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 can hit so quickly and you really you have to be ahead of it
1: the other side of that too is there i've noticed with Akers because of the, the regular season he had, a lot of owners who've had him and he acres didn't win you any fancy football championships last year if you had acres you you weren't even probably in the playoffs because he wasn't cheap and um you know, so they, they kind of hold that against him in the sense that he had that history of basically missing a year, and nobody gets points because he was good in the playoffs. But what we saw in the playoffs is what is extremely encouraging. I mean, it, it was his backfield, and he has the talent to do it. And, you know, people will poke holes in the argument saying his O-line is trash, but the dude has balled out with a bad O-line ever since he left high school. So, I mean, it, he the, his style, uh, he he's patient enough to make the first guy guys that get in the backfield a lot of guys will just run right into him i love when acres always it seems to always make that first guy miss he kind of you know he has like that little like stutter step or stop and go kind of push guys off me and man, camp makers is the truth that is for sure
0: yeah i feel like we could people might listen to this like six months from now and they'll be like Oh my god, it was so obvious, and Acres is just killing it. Eight weeks into the season, they're like, "Oh, why didn't I see this?" But it it is pretty crazy, with especially with uh, less sharp competition, where they're valuing Acres. It's just it blows my mind. And sometimes I look at our rankings and I'm like, should we be more bullish on Acres? And we are way above consensus in Dynasty. And even still, yeah, even still, sometimes I'm just like, man, this guy truly, like you said. He's got that, like, the RB1 upside.
1: You guys are, you guys make this look not like a super hot take, but there's a lot of people that would take, like, a Nick Chubb um, over um, Acres, and just just give me those, you know, three or four more years and I'll, I'll, I'll try my luck with, with Acres for sure.